This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Adrienne Brodeur, author of the novel Little Monsters. With fiction, there is so much freedom. And it truly, it's cliche, but you're building the plane while you're flying it. And you have to write quite a ways into it, I think, to in order to understand who people are. We'll be back with Adrienne Brodeur after these essential words. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. 
It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Adrian Brodeur, author of the memoir Wild Game, which was selected as a best book of the year by NPR and the Washington Post and is in development as a Netflix film. She founded the literary magazine Zoetrope, All Story with Francis Ford Coppola, and she currently serves as executive director of Aspen Words, a literary nonprofit and program of the Aspen Institute. Her new novel is called Little Monsters and follows the Gardner family in 2016 as the two older and nearly estranged siblings, Ken and Abby, set out to organize a 70th birthday party for their father, Adam. While it appears that the Gardner family seems to have it all, reputation, money, parties, and influence in their hometown on Cape Cod, What is left unsaid are years of hurt after the matriarch of the family dies after Abby's birth. Little Monsters looks at issues around gender, loyalty, secrets, family bonds, art, power, and politics. We began the discussion with Adrienne Brodeur sharing how long she lived with the idea of the story before starting to write it. It was after I wrote Wild Game, um, like everyone else, March 2020, you know, sent home. I had I was actually in Aspen at the time, um, but continuing on tour afterwards. And I came home and everything was shut down. But what I've come to realize is that when I'm thinking about my next project, I just, I feel like I notice what I notice, which sounds um, not very specific, but, you know, Mary Oliver had that great line, which was, I guess, three lines, pay attention, be astonished, write about it. And so when I'm in between things, I feel like the thing that I notice most is where my mind keeps going. And my mind did keep sort of circulating around siblings and how complicated the dynamic can be and how people growing up in the same family can experience it so differently And so I just, I started to think about it then and in sort of, you know, as much as you can research this, obviously there was a lot of anecdotal stuff from friends and, um, you know, siblings who got along and siblings who didn't and why, but I I went to the original, you know, Cain and Abel 
And of course, what's shocking about that story is just how little there is to it. I mean, it is really bare bones. Um, so I didn't find out much from it, except what I realize now, and I'm not even sure I realized it when I was doing it, is I found the structure of the book, because of course, in Cain and Abel, gifts are given to the father and you know, the father favors one gift, you know, one child's gift over the other. And, and so then I realized that little monsters would be working towards this moment when the children would be giving their father gifts. That was sort of the, the basic germ of it. Do you have siblings? Oh, I've got all sorts of siblings. I had parents who married a lot. So I have, I have one biological brother um, who's 16 months older than me. I had a biological brother who I never knew who died before I was born. I inherited four step siblings from my mother's first marriage, two from her second. And then, you know, I didn't have half siblings, but both of my parents, which I'm sure is where Steph, the the secret half sibling comes from in this book. Um, both my parents had secret half siblings that they did not know about until they were young adults. Was looking to Cain and Abel and looking to the Bible something kind of new for you? I mean, I understand that idea of going back to the original story, but for some people, they're kind of haunted by these stories. Was that more of a new kind of journey Absolutely. for you? It was just kind of poking around in in the mythology of siblings and, and the great sort of originating stories. I mean, I... I Yes, I'm not, I am no biblical scholar. I wasn't raised in a religious household. You know, it's just something that we all know about. There are many, um, many novels, um, you know, from East of Eden on up and down that that cover this territory of siblings, a thousand acres, you know, so I, I read a lot of them. And I thought about, um, you know, they're not that many books that focus on siblings. I mean, obviously, there are some, but it's not sort of one of the the subjects that seems to be tackled a lot. And I just, as I said, I found myself becoming fascinated by it. Is there something you can point to, and this might not be a fair question, that you find the most fascinating about sibling relationships? You know, that is a tough question. I'd say, you know, it's a little bit what I think I said when I opened, which is, it's just so interesting to me that two people can grow up in the same situation, you know, obviously slightly different eras. I'm not talking about siblings born decades apart with the same two parents and experience the world so differently. Um, and, and so I think that was the primary starting place. Well, I yeah, I do think that when you look at people out there in the world and you think, how did these two people come from the same loins exactly. or, or like ha having the same basic like economic opportunities going to the same schools and how when they turn out really different it, I think it makes you think so much about nature versus nurture and what we're inherently born with yes yes I, I think that that is absolutely true in your novel little monsters the focus is really you have the patriarch his name is Adam He's dealing with some bipolar disorder and we open where he's kind of deciding not to medicate himself and go, go with the mania because he's um, a researcher and he's really interested in 
discovering the communication of whales. And he feels like if he's in this manic state, he'll come to some like incredible conclusions. And his wife died after childbirth of their second child, Abby. Mm-hmm. And then his, so his kids are Ken and Abby and they were very close as kids, even though I think there was some anger from Ken towards Abby, like she somehow precipitated the death of the mother that he was really close to and loved, even though he was only three when she died. And we're really seeing um, the relationship. There, there's a rift between them now and we're not really sure why. And we see from both points of view, maybe some speculation as to why. Mm-hmm. And um, it's taking place in Cape Cod. And you tell the story over a summer. So it's separated into months. And then it's also further separated into points of view. So I want to talk about who these characters are, but I'm really curious about the structure and if structuring it by time was something you knew right away and structuring by point of view was something you knew right away. And if, if that structure actually helped you in the creative process. Yeah, I mean, I think anything you can hang on to in fiction, <laughs> anything, because the world is so wide open for you, you can go anywhere and do anything with any character and any structure and so on, that once you you have any sort of grounding, it's so very helpful. So I think one of the first things I knew was that, you know, I sort of had a sense of this family, um, not completely, but a sense of this family. And I knew I wanted to set uh, the story in 2016 before the election. And it is really not a political book, but I there was something about the mood of the country at that time that I found riveting. And then I also sort of love the you know, somewhat subversive idea that the readers would know more than the characters, like the the characters are going to assume some things are about to happen in their future politically and otherwise, and the readers are going to know that there's something else going on. But either way, and I'm no sociologist, but 2016 to me felt like some kind of global inflection point, which was going to mark the collapse of, you know, sort of the established social order. And it was kind of a perfect storm so that some people, you know, were able to recognize and reckon with their privilege while others went into deeper denial. So the time was kind of a backdrop and I knew I wanted it to to, to stop before the election. So I sort of had this idea that we needed to have a chunk of time. I, I fell in love with this little tight family unit Um all of whom had something very significant at stake. So you mentioned Adam, who's the patriarch and a renowned marine biologist, but really for him, what's going on is he, you know, he's at, he's about to turn 70 and he's really staying relevant is incredibly important to him at this moment in his life. And then Ken also has, you know, this, this, this high stakes thing, which is he's just sealed a real estate deal that sort of catapulted him into a new stratosphere of wealth. And his big dream is to run for Congress. He really wants to amass power. He's ha- He's got wealth and now he wants power and legacy. And Abby, who's the younger child, um, you know, who's been sort of you know, struggling in her career and not really landing, uh, hitting, hitting the landing. She's 
when the book opens, we realize that she is just about, she's about to be discovered in a big way. She's finally found her voice as an artist and she's painting these, you know, somewhat revealing, um, revealing narratives. So, you know, it's, it's a process of each time something falls into place, having a better sense of when, where the book is going, because, um, you know, as you know, my last book was memoir. And what's beautiful about memoir is, you know, who's telling the story and you essentially know the story, which is not to say there is not a lot of craft involved and there's not a lot of decisions and thought, you know, involved in the whole enterprise. But with fiction, just there is so much freedom and it truly it's cliche but you're building the plane while you're flying it and you have to write quite a ways into it I think to in order to understand who people are and to to go back and um and figure it out so um I all that to say yes knowing the family structure which I knew fairly early on and knowing sort of this the timeline was truly helpful because I knew nothing else when you made that decision to, and part of it obviously was that you made it in 2016, so we all know what happened, but when you made the decision to have the reader know more than the characters, mm -hmm. what do you, like, what do you find that's juicy about that? I mean, what's juicy about anyone knowing something someone else doesn't know, right? Because, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but at the end of the book, there's sort of this optimistic sense from the women of this of this family because it's the women who get together to sort of you know who are deciding to create their own subgroup of the family for lack of a better word but you know we talk a lot about or I think a lot about about the family we have and the families we create with our friends and so on and so these women are very um there's a very sort of empowering moment at the end where they sort of have these feelings about what is ahead and so on. So I just think it's, it's, um, it just makes it a little bittersweet or something that their hopes and dreams are not exactly how it's going to roll out. You know, one of the things we talk about a lot in fiction is conflict, but there's also like tension. And I think that there's like something really riveting as a reader when you know things that the characters don't, even beyond just the year, there were, because we're getting everybody's perspective, we also exactly. know, know things. And there's like a, there's like a sense of like, you're waiting for it to unfold. Like you're at the edge of your seat because you know it's going to happen. Whereas if you don't have that information, you, like you were saying in the beginning, it's this infinite world. Right. And it was really exciting. I mean, I don't think I knew, I couldn't tell you when exactly I knew that I was going to be going into such a close third person on each of the point of view characters. Um, but, you know, having written memoir again, you know, you, you explore from the first person perspective. So this was so thrilling to actually have this kaleidoscopic look at this family and be so deep in the head of one person's interpretation of events and then bounce to the next who's who's got an utterly different take. And I think, you know, that's one of the fascinating things about being human. Of course, we all are constantly 
explaining things to ourselves by making up stories about other people, you know, why you gave me that funny look, well, it must have been this and this and that. And the fact is, we're almost always wrong, right? And yet we do it. And so it was actually a lot of fun to, um, to play with that with the characters. Did you ever get the sense when you were writing this, even though you pretty much gave equal real estate to all of the characters, that it was really one of these characters' stories more than anyone else's? Well, I thought that in the beginning, because in the beginning, I was like, no, you know, it's going to be everyone's story. And then I just realized in the end, it it wasn't, although I feel like I could write a novel from any one of these characters and have um, an interesting time doing it. I, I think in the end, it's Abby's story. Um, but but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't immediately obvious to me. I didn't go into it thinking that um, it, it sort of developed. Yeah, I thought it was her story, too. And in some ways, I really thought it was Jenny's story, too. But we can talk about that a little bit. I love that you say that <laughs> because I was the one question I was asked, not in a podcast, but on some uh, written interview was like, which character, if you could give someone a little more page time, I just feel like Jenny still has a lot to say. I think part of the reason it's Abby's story, maybe because of the conflict with her and Ken, that even though she's wondering about it, she's not really trying to work it out in the same way that Ken is trying to work out, like what it's kind of about for him. But I also think that the underlying, one of the underlying themes of this, because of the year you chose of 2016, and because of things that are really powerful that come up in Abby's parts, have to do with feminism and misogyny and like her place in the world as an artist and her place in the world as the sister. And that was very powerful. So, wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, the book is set a little bit pre the Me Too movement. But, you know, I think we all sensed <laughs> sensed it was coming. Um, but, you know, it's something I just I think about all the time. And, and especially with what's happened in the last, you know, five or 10 years. But there we're all becoming aware. I mean, you know, last names, for instance, my children have my last name, Broder. And I'm I am literally the only person I know in a of a heterosexual couple who are married, you know, single women having children, gay women having children, like there are other there are other um options, but of heterosexual couples, I don't know anyone where both the husband and the wife have decided to have that their children will have the wife's last name. I'm not saying that's for everyone, but people don't even talk about it. I mean, people talk about whose name to take on in marriage, are you going to hyphenate? And obviously there are a lot of hyphenated children, but it's just such a understood tradition in our society and a tradition obviously rooted in ownership when women were property. But it's just these types of things that I feel like are starting to get talked about. But I think, you know, I think fiction can be a place for some of those discussions. I mean, I think too, when you're thinking about something like that and you're the year that you're setting it in and the things that you want to, 
your characters to say and think about can create such a perfect storm in fiction. And I think one of the hard things about being a fiction writer is finding a way to embed it in the story without being so didactic or (laughs) having someone feel like they're reading a tome or some essay. And were you conscious of that? And how did you, how did you, how did you modulate that? Well, I was conscious of that and I hope, I hope I did an okay job with it. I mean, one of the, one real life incident that I encountered, and I, I think, I don't remember if it was in the year 2016 or before or after, but was of a man in my circle, very educated, nice, liberal, progressive guy. And I overheard him referring to this teenager in the distance who was an old family friend of his as jailbait. And and it was completely different setting and all the rest. But I just, I remember just being there going like, wait, what, huh? You know, do you, did you, he, he said, and I was so stunned by it. And on the one hand, clearly he hadn't actually thought, well, like he was thinking she's hot or something, but it was so, it was so shocking to me, but there were other women around and not everyone was shocked by it. People were just like, oh, you know, what a stupid thing to say or something, but not, you know, not taking it in, in that visceral way. And so I think sometimes I just wanted to point out things about language and our use of words um, and and the bigger meaning of them. Yeah. And that was a scene that you wrote into your book where, so Ken is running for office and he's friends with these like highfalutin people and he's trying to get donors. And there was a party at his house and his sister, Abby, overheard his potentially big donor supporters talking about this girl, these girls, they were staring at at the dock and she was just disgusted by it. But when she spoke up about it, it just caused further problems between her and her brother. Yeah. In that way that I think we're often sort of, um, I mean, that gaslighting isn't quite the right word, but like, oh, come on, don't be silly. That wasn't what we, you know, you know, they're, they're on the dock posing and looking provocative. I'm doing nothing here, standing on my own property. It was, I was writing this at the point in time when my own daughter sort of did that thing that daughters do, which is go from children to adults and bodies change, but you're still really young inside and yet you're perceived very differently. And I remember that in my own life, you know, still feeling, you know, like I was 12 sometimes, but suddenly the world of men treating me very differently, like old friends of my father's and people who I used to roughhouse with or what have you just... You know, it's just it's a it's a funny time to be a woman. Um, and, and I wanted to capture that as well. We'll be back in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to these episodes pitch free and without advertisements by becoming a member at patreon.com slash first draft writers. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
For Abby and Ken, they, as I said, you know, their mother dies after Abby's born and they, they were very close as children, like maybe in some ways too close. They spent so much time together. They would bunk up in each other's rooms when they were little, but then kind of something happened and between them that is really still existing in their relationship. And what makes it even more complicated is that Ken married Abby's best friend from college named Jenny. And Jenny was, went to RISD with Abby and was going to be an artist. And then, and she came from a lot of wealth. And then she ended up marrying Ken and sort of abandoning art and becoming the kind of woman she said she never wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of embroiled in this rift. And I don't know how much we can say about the rift because I don't want to reveal anything you don't want to reveal. But I'm, I'm really curious because this is at the heart of your novel about, you know, that original idea from Kane was giving gifts, but it also kind of stands for something between the siblings. So what you're trying to sort of bake into the book with that. Ken and Abby, since they grew up without a mother and, um, you know, the mother sort of haunts both of them and haunts the father as well, but, but it is essentially this, they, they are not, let's just say they are not properly parented. They do not have a mother and they have a erratic father. And as a result, they get very, very, very close um, and they have to count on each other. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to explore or interrogate that kind of relationship that, that might be unhealthy between siblings. And what I, what I, you know, I, I think Ken is probably, the most wounded character in the book. So he's he's lost his mother. I mean, Abby, I mean, she lost her mother too, but she didn't have those first formative years with her to feel that anguish. Whereas Ken did, even if he was too young to understand it. I mean, he certainly experienced the loss of the primary person in his life. And in that way, you know, there was an immediate replacement. Mommy's not here, but you know, here's this baby. So I think there was some sort of baked in resentment there. Um, but but they, you know, there's just this love hate thing going on um, and and just deeply complicated feelings between them. And I think, you know, I I really tried to explore every character in this book. I mean, I'm interested in characters um, I'm not interested in heroes or villains. I'm curious about sort of what is good and evil or courageous and corrupt in all of us. And all of these characters, you know, have their reasons for behaving the way they are uh, or the way they do. And, you know, it's sort of the humanity that I'm most interested in. You know, when you're you're thinking about all these things, like these things between siblings and and creating all these characters and different structure point of view, I mean, how do you start? Like, <laughs> what was your process like when you started? Like, do you start with all of that in notes? Do you just write a scene and just trust that that airplane will fly? God, it's such a good question. And when any of us figures out the creative process, you know, A, I think it's different for everyone. I feel like for me, and I can only speak about my own process, 
and this will sound familiar, I have to put something on the page in order to be able to push back against any of it. So my process, I feel like some writers, um, you know, write, 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 write down every rabbit hole. They have, you know, a, a novel that's a thousand pages and then works. And then, you know, their big process is editing it back and pulling it in and pulling it in. I feel like I do something that is more like I keep layering. So I have, I might start with a very skeletal chapter. You know, I, I did write this more or less from the beginning to the end, but things changed a lot along the way. Like Jenny wasn't a character in the first draft. I, I felt like Abby needed a friend and the characters needed more dimension and so on. But I, I just, I start and then, I go back and I layer and layer and layer. And I know the wisdom is, um, you know, write a horrible first draft from beginning to the end. I have never been able, quite able to do that, but I do write horrible first drafts of chapters. And then I don't get them to a perfect state, but I do, I have a very tough time moving on from chapter one if I don't feel like it's a pretty solid foundation, it's almost like I'm I'm building a tower. So you know this it it needs to at least hold up the next chapter. And so when I realize oh I'm going to have to change something, generally I will go back, which I know is you know against the rules, <laughs> but I'll go back and fix it in order just to support the stuff to come. I approach writing as it is pretty much the only thing I do for myself. I mean, that sounds strange, but I, you know, I, like most people, I have a very busy life. I have a job I love. I've got two children. I have a husband. I've got aging, an aging father, you know, so this, I, I don't meditate. I don't exercise. I don't do all the sort of the other things, but this, these few hours in the morning are something I do for myself. And I, and I actually, it feels really good to me, which is not to say it's easy. It's never easy. But when I write, I enjoy it. It's satisfying. It's so satisfying when I get exactly the right words around a thought, because you know this, like, you know, and I can tell you about the the parts of this book that weren't easy. I mean, we all have these sort of thoughts. Okay, well then I'll I'll do this. I'll build towards this party, and then you're like, oh, well, how am I going to do this? How, how do I get there? And you know, you just have to write a little bit. You know, delete, start again, keep going. But I'm not a fast writer. I you know, for all these friends I have who write 500 or a thousand or 5,000 words a day, if I write one single page, 250 words a day. And many days I do not, in part because I'm deleting, but that's that's good for me. And by the way, 250 words a day, if you do it every day, you know, there's a draft in a year. So it really is doable. And I find the best piece of writerly advice is to do it every day. Um, for me, it just keeps everything in my mind it 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 when when the book or the project or whatever it is is so front and center in my brain it's like every flavor everything i see every conversation i overhear it all informs the book and if i 
hear someone say something wonderful, you know, yes, I will just capture it and put it in there somewhere. Um, my favorite, literally my favorite line in the book, uh, I don't know if it's my favorite, but one that I just remember, it was a, a member of my family who's a little snarky and funny said something about the feeder, the birds at my feeder being ornithological riffraff. And I remember thinking that is so on a line of atoms, it's going in there. But that was, that was from someone else. You know, sometimes you get those little gifts, but you have to be really in it to be paying attention to everything in the service of your book. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking like, just, just to talk just very briefly on the line level, just on the very first page, you have this paragraph and it's right when Adam is basically deciding to go with the mania and not take his medicine because he wants this discovery. And you write, Adam tried to decipher the clues his mind was depositing. He had one big discovery left in him. He felt sure of that. The thing, whatever it was, an idea, a theory, was taking its own sweet time to make itself known. He knew he needed to trust the process. If he could practice patience and maintain equilibrium, Adam felt certain that every book he'd ever read, every piece of art that had ever moved him, every conversation, creature, curiosity, and concept he'd encountered in his lifetime would align like cherries in the slot machine of his mind. And I just like put the book down and was like, oh my God, that is so beautiful. Well, first of all, <laughs> thank you. Second of all, I want to let you know that that was the, the paragraph I was going to read. <laughs> and third, what I'll say about that was to me, that was also about writing, right? Because he's he's doing that about, you know, his, his big theory, but that's actually how I feel about writing is if I'm really in it, if I trust the process, I know that every, like all of life's experiences will, will line up like that. That's how it actually works for me anyway. Um, but no, I mean, I, yes, it's, it's hard, but I also love it. Like, that's the thing I was saying that's so wonderfully satisfying. And Adam was such a um, fun, and I will say relatively easy character for me to write. And I do not know why that is because, you know, I generally, it's always a struggle to figure out who your characters are and to really get to know them. And, you know, I, I learn about them through the first, I'd say, 150 pages of the book. And then by then I figure out who they are. Adam just showed up fully formed um, and hilarious and snarky. But I I really, I God, I hope I have this experience again. I mean, I would just put my hands over the keyboard and hover and they would just they would go um he just he really spoke <laughs> every voice has to have their own style because you're not writing just one character and so right. the type of language you use the cadence the rhythm the just the vocabulary um, and the mood for each character has to be really different. It's like you are doing all these monologues and playing all these different characters in your head at once. And were you really aware of that? I actually was really aware of it. And I, first of all, I appreciate you commenting and noticing because I feel like we've all read books where you know, the siblings or the friends, you're just like, wait, whose head am I in? I, I can't relate. Like they all seem a little bit too alike. And so part of it was 
really differentiating people and getting into their heads. And, and so I don't know why I had an easier time getting into a bipolar 70 year old man, grandiose, sexist man's head, but that was kind of um, the easiest one for me. Um, Abby and Ken uh, were, were more challenging. And then Steph was the one that I really, since, you know, she's the furthest from me in as much as she's, you know, Catholic and gay and from a, a completely a working class background. And so I really, it was really important for me to get her right. And often I would write in sort of either loftier language or something. And I would just need to be like, oh no, this is, this is, um, this is Steph. She's this way. And thinking about, uh, you know, I had to interview police officers and really try to understand how they talk and how they think. And, um, you know, and I did have some readers, you know, sort of on sensitivity issues, sort of saying, look, if she's in a Catholic family, she would, you know, obviously be wondering if, uh, or if she's gay, she'd be wondering if this new family of hers might be homophobic or those types of things. So you do, it's, I'm glad it looks natural and simple. It, it does actually take a lot. And some people, I think, write most of the pieces, you know, might have written all of Abby's and all of Ken's and then all of Adam's just to sort of stay in the same brain throughout the book. I did switch and switch gears when I wrote, but it really was a huge switching of gears um, going from character to character, but it actually made the writing process fun and interesting because, you know, you're, I was in such a different head when I was sort of the less the less confident artist discovering her voice versus the you know more wounded um but arrogant you know wannabe politician you know just it i would it was like i'd switch hats every few weeks or months do most people you know who are writers also have sensitivity readers can you talk about that i think it's a very new thing i think it's probably a very important thing. And I also think, you know, in some cases, we've really swung the pendulum in a, you know, in a, in a very stressful way. I mean, it is such a big issue, um, sort of who has the right to write about what. And I think people are being very, very careful right now. Um, I, I know it's a constant conversation with writer friends of mine, and we all worry I mean, uh, the the on the on the good side of this this issue is that people are really trying to get it right, which I think is what we all acknowledge is the most important thing. If you are writing, if as a white person you are writing a an African American or Mexican character or some some someone other than you, there should be a good reason, and you have to do it really well. You know that there's been so much. Um, just writing in cliches and so on. I think the the complicated thing is if if we all can only write about ourselves, you know, I would have a novel of middle-aged white women, and I don't know that that's interesting. And and just sort of how to navigate this. Um, it just so happened that one of the women in my writing group is gay, and so she was really helpful about pointing out some of the stuff that she thought I needed to be careful with about Steph, um, which I was very grateful for. So you have a writing group. So my writing group is comprised of three women, 
And it started when I was writing Wild Game in New York City. And um, each of those those two were working on novels. Um, and, you know, over COVID and with each of us publishing at different points in time, we kind of disbanded and we've never gotten together in the same way. It used to be with when I was writing Wild Game, we actually met sort of every four to six weeks, each delivering a chapter kind of like that. And this time it was much more, oh, you know, every, I don't know, four to six months, can you read a chunk and give feedback and that type of thing. But it was still very helpful. The The writing group for me is much more about um, inspiration and getting stuff onto the page and feeling inspired both by their work and having, having you know, just having them as early readers is very, um, you know, it, it keeps you accountable. You you have these people who you hold in high regard and you are very, it's very wonderful to get feedback and direction from people you trust a lot. Have you had the experience, not necessarily with them, where someone has given you advice that has thrown you off that you got stuck on? I feel like it, my younger self, absolutely. Um, and it's one of the things that I talk to writers about all the time is that when you're getting feedback, I mean, really some part of you should be nodding internally, you know, like even if you don't want the feedback or like it, you understand it and it makes sense because that's the only problem with writing workshops is if you don't if you're not able to discern for yourself who gets you, who understands your work and and who's reading in order to help you do what you want to do, not to be like, oh, I think the grandmother should die in the first chapter because, it, you know, it's it, it's it's a lot. It's it's a very difficult thing. But when you find your people, you stick to them because it's such a gift to have generous readers, but also really honest readers. Um, but you do need to have the confidence of knowing your own work enough to just be able to say like, oh, that that person is not my reader. And I, I, I need to disregard that comment. You mentioned earlier, you know, that you don't, you know, you have a busy life, you, you know, try to just get your 250 words a day if you can. And when you were writing this, I think you were writing it during COVID, your kids mm -hmm. were like turning into teenagers. And did you lose your mom during this as well? Yes, I did. The, my, my mom died this last past summer in August. Uh, but I was, you know, I had written to the end of the draft at the same time. Two of your characters had lost their mother. So just you know, curious about like all of that going on in your life and still being able to maintain and focus on this. Right. Um, you know, the I think the thing that most enables me to write through stuff is actually because of when I write, which is before anyone on earth is awake. I mean, I I get up at five usually. And I write before anyone in the house, including the dog, stirs. And it's before also my own brain is interested in world news or calling a caregiver or doing laundry or figuring out 
stuff for Aspen words or anything else. It's just this time where the only thing I'm focused on is writing. So, you know, it sounds weird to say, I mean, it's not obviously, I wasn't writing during hugely emotional and traumatic moments. Um, but but that that time period is really sacred to me. And it for some reason, because I am a type A, I've got my lists, I've got my to-do, but it just I kind of trick it by getting up so early that it hasn't kicked in yet. In terms of um the loss of my mother, because it is a really interesting question given that I was writing this this book about motherless characters although i i will say i i when i handed it into my editor i sort of was like oh, you know you're going to be so proud after that you know my memoir is really about entirely about my relationship with my mother i was like i have written a novel that does not feature a mother i've just focusing on you know i've created an entirely fictional family with you know that's just comprised of a patriarch and two children and you know and she's like yeah but adrian um they're all haunted by the mother <laughs> so you do make a good point and i um i think you know this was and is fiction like the mother in this book is is not my mother and is not a big presence um, in terms of actually who she was or what she did. But I do feel the fact that that mothers are such a primary relationship for all of us. I mean, it's just, it is there and she does haunt every character. And, um, you know, my own mother is very much with me even as she's no longer here. We'll be back in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to these episodes pitch-free and without advertisements by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Um, I absolutely adore Mary Oliver, who is a you know famous poet, obviously, but who spent much of her life in Provincetown and writing on Cape Cod and she would walk through the woods and um, and just notice beautiful things. So I'm gonna read In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away, over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things, to love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. Do you have anything else you want to say about that? Like why Mary Oliver touches you so much? I feel like Mary Oliver just somehow seen, sees into our souls in the smallest gestures, whether it is, you know, a grasshopper eating sugar, 
she's just brilliant and she's brilliant with the natural world and what's being someone who is writing about Cape Cod and this the splendor of this environment and its fragility um I just don't think anyone does it better than Mary Oliver can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or just something you like I will so I'm going to read a section from when Adam who is a marine biologist is out on his boat um with a young woman who he's who, who who he really likes and he he doesn't know who she is really yet but he's trying to share with her whale song and what he what he thinks it is and of course he's also experiencing some mania so he he might be thinking he understands more than he does but uh right now we're on the boat with adam and steph Adam lowered the device into the water and attached the handle to a clip on the gunwale. Let there be sound, he thought, fidgeting with the volume on the small black box. A few seconds of static and then behold, a dulcet composition of moans, chirps, howls, and snores, all before below four kilowatts, kilohertz in frequency. Steph's face lit up and the apprehension on it disappeared. She, she sank onto the padded bow cushion, closed her eyes, and bent her head down, giving the whale song the attention a miracle deserves. She pressed the speaker cushions against her ears. Oh my God, oh my God, Adam, is this, is this what I think it is? There was so much to tell his new friend, his student, his maritime Helen Keller. Adam wanted to explain how sound worked differently in the ocean, where waves could bend around the horizon and travel great distances, allowing the past and present to be experienced at once. But that would be too much too soon. Perhaps it would be okay to mention that humpbacks enjoyed replaying patterns structurally resembling human rhythm. Good. It had been at least 50 years since he picked up an epic poem, for all they knew, they were listening to a cetacean Homer composing songs in the whale equivalent of dactylic hexameter. Damn, he was good. So tell me more about this passage. You know, this is really, there's still so much at stake for Adam, who believes he's about to crack the code of whale song and whale language. And this is sort of the first person who he's going to be able to show that to. And he's, you know, he's, um, he's a mess of emotions. He's on, he's off his medication, but taking his own drugs, um, all in effort to connect these dots on his theory. And, and the reader doesn't know whether it's going to go anywhere or not. And, um, but it's sort of beautiful. I, I mean, his love of these songs and these creatures. And I am fascinated by whales. I mean, that was the most wonderful part of writing this book was just researching humpbacks. Um, but it's, you know, it's his great love. Where do you write? Um, for the most part, as unimaginative as it sounds, I write at my desk, um, which is, you know, <laughs> in a small hallway between my closet and my bathroom. Um, but for me, as I think I said earlier, I, I can write 
from anywhere. It's more about the time than the place for me. I just need to be, I need to write early in the morning before my head gets caught up in my day. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take long walks on the beach, which is the equivalent of meditating for me. I will, I will sometimes walk, I don't know, five or 10 miles on, on Cape Cod beaches and, um, look for sea glass, you know, that, that beautiful, I mean, I also, (laughs) it's cheating, but sometimes I count that as, um, writing too, because it's a place where a lot of ideas will come to me when I'm not looking too hard for them. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a wonderful friend whose name is Sarah Roselle, who is not part of the literary world. And we used to live in the same building in New York City when our children were small. And I I cannot even remember why I asked her to read something of mine for the first time, but I did. And she is just, you know, when you find your perfect reader, you stick to her. Um, she is brilliant. She gets my writing. She's good on the big picture as well as the small picture. So she'll, you know, and she's just, she's so straightforward. She's a lawyer. So she's very, you know, she just doesn't mince words, but she'll tell me what parts just feel flabby or I'm not getting to the point or um, that where she's confused, but she's just, she's um, a great reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, how I dealt with rejection, I'd say, has evolved a lot over my lifetime. You know, as a young person, rejection so feels so personal. And I think it used to fill me with shame, like, you know, someone didn't like my this or that. And now that I'm older, um, you know, I know for sure that rejection is is almost never personal. Um, so when I can learn from it, I really try to, and often it's very helpful and when I can't, I just, I move on. And what is your favorite word? This is such a hard question because there are so many fantastic words. Um, but for the sheer pleasure of just saying it, bumfuzzle, <laughs> which is something my mother used to say, which means confused, bumfuzzle. I love it. And for the beauty of having a word to express how I almost always feel which is a bibliophobia, which is the fear of not having something great to read. Almost the moment I get to the end of the book, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to read next? What am I going to read? Luckily, right now I'm reading The Covenant of Water and it's so long, I don't have to experience that, that anxiety for a while. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so appreciative. Mitzi, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I love it. If you like today's show with Adrian Berdour, author of the novel Little Monsters, check out my first interview with her on her memoir, Wild Game. We talked about a life-altering moment, the legacy of deception, and to be seen as a whole person for the first time. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft E-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, 
writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Alice Elliott-Dark, and Elizabeth Graver. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft Dialogue on Writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.